it is I, Archmage Merlinster Gendeldor of Mage's Musings, and you're listening to The Tale of the Manticore. Mm-hmm. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last chapter, the party, along with their guide, Torum, navigates the twists and turns of the centuries-old lizardfolk lair located in the cliffs right under Whitestone Castle. Since the original residents deliberately caved in most of it, there remains but a single serpentine path that penetrates up and into the cliff rock to a place Torum calls the Sapper's Cavity. While in the Lizardfolk Lair, we learn a little bit of Camertine's early history. We also get a better understanding of how Shrawl came to power. But the PCs do not linger. When they reach the Sapper's Cavity, Torum takes them up a ladder and into the basement of a building somewhere in Silmoral. They have entered the Copper Dragon a disused inn that acts as a church guild safe house and is looked after by the strangely named Barrel Boy. Over a poor meal, Barrel Boy shares some of the rumors he's heard until Torum abruptly decides to leave. When asked where he's going, he says he's going to fetch their new contact, a man named Greenblood. Chapter 59, Part 1, Day 182 Evening. Party status. Yellowfly. 39 of 39 hit points. Shawnee. 30 of 30. Jace. 37 of 37. Catsbane. 17 of 17. Bazio. 16 of 16. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized. Invisibility. Mirror image. And haste. Bazio has prayed for. Cure light wounds times two. Once Torum had left, Yellowfly said, All right, Bazu, I know you've been waiting to ask. Go ahead. Bazu blew out an exasperated and slightly barbed thank you before turning to Barrel Boy. My friend, what can you tell us of the clerics of the Church of the Sacred Flame? Barrel Boy leaned back and looked briefly at the ceiling as though searching his memory. Oh, yes. I did hear something about Sadal's church. Yes? Asked Bazu eagerly. I heard they clapped a lock on the doors, chained it up. Not a soul has gone in or come out for months. It's completely empty. I bet every treasure in there has been transferred to Colfrey's coffers for safe keeping. Barrel Boy exaggerated the last two words to demonstrate his skill with sarcasm. So the clerics are still in the dungeon under Whitestone? Bazu's mouth hung agape. Couldn't venture a guess, replied their host. Churches and that sort of thing really aren't my wheelhouse, begging your pardon. Sadala, mercy, Bazu breathed. 
The cleric became introspective from then on, while the others continued to talk and share news. After a little more than an hour, they heard the door open downstairs and the sound of boots. That must be Torum with this green blood, ventured Yellowfly. Jay suddenly turned to him and asked, Do lizard folk have green blood, Fly? It took a second before Yellowfly understood what Jace was thinking. Torum's not bringing a lizard man to see us. Use your head, man. When Torum appeared at the door, he was alone. He held out his hands in a helpless gesture and said, All right, don't get your smoke clothes at a bunch. I met with him. He said to tell you to do whatever you need to do tonight, get to bed early, and he'll be by an hour before dawn to take you up to the castle. I suppose we're just going to walk right up through the front doors, eh? <laughs> said Yellowfly with a wry laugh. Not the front door, I'm sure, but something like that. Listen, I'm tired, and I have a few things of my own to do. I need to go back out and take care of her. If I don't see you before you go, good luck. Oh, uh, thank you for the help, said Bazu on behalf of all of them. Oh, well, if you're so grateful, I don't suppose you'd like to tell me where you got your name, Yellowfly. It's been bothering me since we left. I'll tell you on the return trip. How's that? As Yellowfly with a good-natured smile. Not what I'd hoped for. Torm replied, a little disappointed. But speaking of the return trip, I'll wait until dawn on the day after tomorrow before I go back to Nepule. Meet me here before then if you intend to return with me. Well, perhaps you'd like to come with us instead. While Yellowfly was only joking, something about the words or the way he said them must have somehow disarmed their guide. Torm's smile vanished. Uh, I... no, I don't think I'll go that far. With his good humor suddenly extinguished, he turned and walked down the hall, waving goodbye over his shoulder as he went. An awkward pause followed, then Barrel Boy cleared his throat and offered to show the companions to their rooms. The place never had any guests, he said, so they could each have a room and a bed to themselves if they wanted. Even though the gamer in me is crying out, No, don't do it! What really makes sense at this point is to split the party. Most of the PCs have specific things they want to do while they're back in Silmoral, and there's really just this one opportunity to do them. Jace is going to want to go out and try to find his family. To be honest, I think he'll also be looking for information on his former mentor, Nudge Pickens. I'm going to say, by DM Fiat, that he can find his family. The visit will be brief, in and out, with time to embrace his brother, Hecton, and put a sack of coins in his hands. Then, as he leaves, he'll tell Hecton to let their parents know he's alive and well and will come home for good just as soon as he's able. The sack of coins represents most of Jace's half-share of the reward from the Goddard job. He gives Hecton 175 GP, keeping just five for himself to live on. From there, he'll spend an hour or so looking for Nudge. Nudge will not be easily found. I'll roll a d10. On a 10, Jace will find him, and he'll get something from him too, probably information. To make it interesting, on a roll of one, something bad will happen. Risk and reward, right? Here's the roll. An eight. Jace gets a tip from a friend, but it goes nowhere, and eventually he gives up, returning to the Copper Dragon, where he decides to turn in early. Over to Yellowfly. He's on a similar mission, hoping to find Lord Rabbit. I'll use the same mechanic with him as I did for Jace. The roll. Huh, another eight. Yellowfly finds a bent nail sticking out of the bottom of the back door at Lord Rabbit's home and recognizes it for the thieves' camp symbol it is. In the church guild, a bent nail stuck into the back door of a residence indicates that the person living there has gone underground and will be incommunicado for a protracted period of time. That's a dead end for Yellowfly, who realizes right away that he isn't going to get any further. He goes back to the Copper Dragon and waits for his companion's return. 
drinking watery tea with Barrel Boy and commiserating with him about Somoral's many woes. That leaves Bazu, Katzbane, and Shawnee. The three of them have gone off together to investigate the Church of the Sacred Flame. In the last episode, when I rolled for rumors, I got a partial truth for the news about the church. Early in this episode, Barrel Boy told them, I heard they clapped a lock on the doors. Not a soul has gone in or come out for months. It's completely empty. Well, that's half true. The place is chained up, and there's a lock on it. What Barrel Boy doesn't know is that the lock was broken weeks ago, and the place is far from empty. Bazu is out looking for something specific. Catsbane and Shawnee, who once lived among the clergy folk in the church's dormitories, are coming along out of his sense of duty and also to support their friend, Bazu, who is clearly upset. Together, the three of them are about to find out who or what is inside. Chapter 59, Part 2, Day 182, Late Evening, Party Status, Shawnee, 30 of 30 hit points, Catsbane, 17 of 17, Bazu, 16 of 16, Spells Available, Catsbane has memorized, Invisibility, Mirror Image, and Haste. Bazu has prayed for, Cure Light Wounds, times two. The sun had set more than an hour ago, and although it was not quite night, the city was dark. Barrel Boy had been right about everything he'd told them. There were very few people abroad, but the signs of corporal punishment were everywhere. They passed a gibbet with a corpse in it on the way to the Thurry Gate. Atop the gate itself, they noticed three withered heads mounted on spikes. Although they didn't ask, the guards stationed there saw them look up and mentioned that the heads belonged to lawbreakers. Ignorant of the irony, they also demanded payment, but in this regard, Barrel Boy had been mistaken. He had said that the price had gone up fourfold. That might have been true during the day, but for a pair of non-threatening men and a young woman traveling after sunset, the price was one gold coin each, ten times the original toll. It was essentially a bribe, and Shawnee knew it, which he paid for all, handing over the money while enduring crass remarks from the guards who took it. Well, you're one rich lady, huh? I like you. <laughs> Once beyond the Thurry Gate, the trio headed south and east, proceeding by way of side roads and alleys in the direction of the South Gate. The Church of the Sacred Flame was not far. In a few minutes, they would arrive. There was a time when I would have rolled a wandering encounter check at this point to see if Bazu and his friends would be noticed and molested by a city watch patrol. But here's the thing, so moral has changed. Although it's a bleaker and more brutal place in many ways, I think the visible presence of the city watch is much reduced. The primary strategy for keeping the peace these days is through highly public displays of punishment, Intimidation is everywhere, but there just aren't that many men available to wear out shoe leather on patrols. Therefore, I'm not going to roll for it. I'll allow the three PCs to make it to the church without incident. Let's take a quick ad break. When we come back, we'll find out what they discover there. Danger. Mystery. Intrigue. Think you've heard all that actual play podcasts have to offer? Think again. I'm Nate Peterson. I'm Nate Peterson. The... The... The Dungeon Master for... Yes, Stuart, what can I do for you? I know naught of this, Stuart. My name is Dweezel Vanzafir, the Bard of Bards. Well, firstly, your name's Stuart and you're from Yorkshire. Secondly, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm trying to record an advert for our show. 
Well, firstly, in your parlance, I've never even heard of this Yorkshire. And secondly, if there is a show to be advertised, then surely it should be I, Dweezil Vanzafir, to do the advertising. I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, surely this is a job for me as the dungeon master. Uh, perhaps a, uh, song? Mm, no, I certainly don't think it's time for a song. Five adventurers, brave and true, strong of will and strong of arm. A band unbreakable through and through, they protect each other from insult and harm. What more persuasion could one require? Tune in to hear our tales. Dyson Desire. You see, Stuart, words do have power, but certainly not as much power as the dungeon master. Join me as I corral my merry band of misfits who stonking thunder every week on Dyson Design, a 5e actual play podcast. Shawnee drew her thieves' tools out of her belt pouch as they approached the darkened shape of the church. She could see moonlight glinting dully off the chains and the padlock. The three of them had made the following plan en route. Catsbane and Bazu would act as lookouts while Shawnee picked the lock. If anyone approached, one of the two men would clear their throat and she would be forewarned. However, when the two men took up their posts and she moved up towards the church's front door, she put her tools away. Even from a distance, she could see that the padlock, though it held the two ends of the chain together and looked solid from a distance, was already open. That's curious, she thought, turning to wave Bazu and Kasbane over. The two were somewhat confused until Shane pointed out what she had seen. Well, I suppose that makes our job just a little easier offered Caspain. What now? asked Shane. Bazu, I could turn you invisible if you wish to go in alone. I do not wish to be invisible in the holy house of Sadal, protested Bazu, indignant. And we didn't come along only to stand outside, Caspain. Besides, I'm fairly certain it would be safer to be inside. We've been lucky so far not having encountered the watch, but that good fortune can't last forever. Very well, replied Caspain, then muttering under his breath. It was merely a suggestion... Getting inside was as simple as removing the padlock, then replacing it behind them as they passed through and closed the front doors. The smell inside the church was as complex as it was unpleasant, a mingling of urine and garbage under a top note of burnt something. They were in a vestibule that connected without partition to the main hall of worship. All three of them knew the place well. This was where the congregation would assemble twice every week to pray together as a community. Catsbane remembered it as the place where he would join the other clerics in song. It was dim, but not completely dark. Catsbane, however, since he had cast Infravision as part of his daily routine of study, could see perfectly well, albeit in grayscale. Just then, a rustling noise came from a far corner beyond several rows of pews. This was followed by a wet cough, which in turn caused a baby to start crying softly. This will lose tears. There are people living in here, breathed Shane. It quickly became apparent that there were a number of people making a home here. Sadal's mercy and grace, declared Bazu, wearing a grief-stricken countenance. He hurried over to a nearby side table, where he knew there to be a three-pronged candelabra used for ceremonies. Using a lighting device, he quickly had a flame to each of the waxy stubs and lifted it high while walking out into the middle of the room. All around him, shadows shifted and voices murmured. Now that there was a light to see by, the three companions could easily tell where the burnt smell came from. A small ceremonial brazier attached to a tripod had been used to cook something and had been knocked over. The coals within must have ignited a nearby tapestry. There was a ragged and blackened section that told the whole story. 
The combination of sudden light and crying baby brought the room to rustling life as the sick and dispossessed who were making a temporary home of this place roused themselves from sleep. There were quite a few people. Bazu could count as many as two dozen and of all ages. Shawnee wasn't looking at the people. She regarded the burnt tapestry with an expression of horror, remembering what she had been through in the warehouse and imagining what had almost happened here. It was clear that some of the huddled groups were families. Most had chosen the corners and pews by the nave and built makeshift homes of borrowed mattresses and blankets there. Bazu wondered why they hadn't simply taken over the dormitories. That would have been more comfortable and less effort. Instead, it seemed they had dragged materials in here. Why do that? For warmth? No, that didn't make sense. This room was just as warm as any dorm. Was it for company? Again, that didn't make sense. There were communal sleeping quarters as well as private ones. Perhaps it was so that they would feel watched over by greats at all. Bazu had to admit that was unlikely too. Then, seeing how all the pairs of eyes were peeking over the pews anxiously at him and hearing the unseen bodies shifting restlessly, he understood. They were here because the dormitories had but a single door. There would be no way to escape if the need to arose. He resolved to do something to help these good people, but now was not the time. There was something else he needed to do first. His eyes found the set of double doors that he knew led into the cloister and then to the stairs to the second level, where one could find the men's living and sleeping quarters, library, scriptorium, and the private chapel. Bazu headed that way, whispering over to his companions to follow. Once through, he led them straight for the stairs. Behind them, a pair of eyes watched, coming to rest on Shane. At first wide in surprise and recognition, now they narrowed in hatred. Then, the watcher slid his hand down to his belt, as slow and deliberate as a serpent, where it drew a long dagger from a sheath. All three of them had ascended these stairs many times in the past. Shanae felt a strange pang of nostalgia as they went, even though at the time she had not enjoyed her stay here. They alighted into a hallway that stretched straight ahead for 80 feet and terminated, she knew, at Priestess Araness's private chapel. Along the way were doors leading to the individual and communal men's dormitories. The women's were located some distance away and on the first floor. Close by was a doorway of dark wood that marked the scriptorium and the library, or more accurately, the church's collection of little libraries. Catsbane had spent most of his free time during their stay here, since Araness hadn't trusted him enough to lend him any of the rare books he studied. On impulse, he told the others to go on ahead without him. There's something in here that I need to check, he explained. I'll be along in just a moment. Oh, said Bazu, stopping to turn. Let me give you one of these candles. He made to pluck one of the three waxy stalks from its pricket, but Caspian waved his hand, saying, Don't bother. I can see better without it. Then he pushed the door open and went inside. It was true. Once away from Bazu's candlelight, the grayscale of his infravision returned, and Catspain's vision improved. The scriptorium was warmer than he remembered it being. Looking at the far corner, he saw why. The window was closed. He now remembered the beautiful young woman who had sat by the window, and her heart-melting smile. And, how could he forget, the weird blue-eyed raven on the sill by her elbow. Shaking his head to clear away the memory, Catsbane moved briskly through the room, past the desks with their ink-stained wooden tops, and over to the right, where he ducked under a low stone arch and into a small library. This was where Araness's collection of rare books on demonology were kept, and Catsbane had spent many an hour here. 
there was a specific tome he wanted to find, but perhaps he should have accepted the candle from Bazio. The spines were difficult to read. Difficult, but not impossible. Katzbein found that he could read them if he took his time. One by one, he pulled the books from the shelves, scanned their titles, and returned them. Many of these volumes were familiar to him, but he did not come across the one he wanted. Well, there was no great hurry. Let Bazu and Shane go on ahead. He would stay here, alone, find the book, and catch up with them later. Meanwhile, Bazu and Shane were making their way along the corridor toward the chapel. As they went, Shane noticed that one of the dormitory doors was ajar. She hesitated, then pushed it open fully. Inside was the ammonia smell of cat urine, and indeed, in the gloom, she could make out the flashing emerald and amber eyes of several feral cats. One of them gave her a warning hiss, and she backed off, returning the door to its original position before catching up with Bazu, now backlit by the light he bore, and almost at the end of the corridor. When she reached him, the cleric asked in a whisper, Is Catsbane not with you? Shane shook her head no. She looked unconcerned. He can take care of himself, she said. Bazu shrugged and turned to open the door to the chapel. It was made of dark wood, identical to the scriptoriums, and it reflected the candlelight warmly. Shanae had never been inside this chapel before. It was primarily used by the priestess for her private meditations, though sometimes brothers Teregrim and Ikhart came here to receive counsel. The door creaked open to reveal a sitting area, with a worn rug and some comfortable-looking chairs. Holy symbols made variously of wood or metal hung on the walls alongside miniature sconces supporting yellow candles. A single archway in the opposite wall led down a short flight of steps and away into a narrow passage. Bazu lit two of the wall-mounted candles, and the chamber filled with the smell of beeswax. I must go alone from here, he said. Will you wait? I shall not be gone for long. All right, Shane replied in a whisper. I'll wait here. She couldn't say why, but something was making her feel uneasy, a premonition that all was not well. Perhaps it was just this old church. She had always felt there was something disquieting about the trappings of religiosity. She couldn't say why, but it was true nonetheless. For no other reason than it gave her comfort, she pulled Tam's orphan key free of her shirt and made a fist around it while closing her eyes in melancholy remembrance. If Bazu noticed, he didn't mention anything about it. Instead, he said, Very well. I shall return anon. The cleric of Sadal descended the steps alone while Shane remained behind. Unbeknownst to her, creeping on bare feet, just as quiet as a mouse in the hall behind her, came the shadowy figure of a man with a long dagger in his hand. Shane is unaware of how much danger she's in right now, but she actually does know the person sneaking up behind her, and he knows her too. In fact, he's thought about her every single day since, well, suffice it to say, he wants her dead very badly. Badly enough that he would sacrifice his own life to end hers, if it came to that. This man is, in game terms, a fifth-level thief, and he's going to attempt a backstab. Before he can do that, he'll need to make a successful move silently check, otherwise Shane will be alerted to his presence. The target number is, by the book, 40%, but I'm giving him a plus 10% chance for success because he's, one, in a place he knows well, and two, barefoot. That means on a roll of 50 or under, he'll get not only a plus four on his attack roll, but he'll do double damage if the strike connects. The roll. Chapter 59, part three, day 182, night. 
Party status. Shane, 30 of 30 hit points. The unknown assassin. 10 out of 10 hit points. He was invisible in the dark, and his feet soundless against the cold of the flagstones as he padded forward, froze, and continued. He was closing the distance now and would be within striking range soon. His heart beat in his breast like a trapped bird, and, although it was cool in the hallway, his grip was slippery with sweat. There she was. Finally. A chance he never thought he would see. Ahead, framed in yellow light and standing just beyond the doorway, was the person he hated most in this world. To Sadal, Veseluna, Chartoon, or whomever would listen, he mouthed a silent prayer for his blade to strike true. He was so close now. This was it. On impulse, he reversed the dagger in his hand. Instead of striking between her shoulder blades, he would grab her by the hair, yank her head back, and pull his knife across her throat. He was only a few feet away. He held his breath, steadied himself, and shot out his hand. But instead of a handful of hair, he grasped only air. A split second later, he felt pain explode on his face as the woman's fist struck him against his brow. He staggered back, wiping blood away from his eye with his free hand and raising his dagger in the air once again with the other. If there was any justice in the world, this woman was going to die by his hand right now. The unknown assassin rolled a 76 and failed his move silently check. The punch he sustained was for narrative color only and doesn't affect anything mechanically. At this point, the two will have to roll initiative before taking any further action, so I guess that must mean we are entering combat. Round one, initiative, the assassin. A two, Shawnee. A six, this is such a decisive victory that I'm going to allow Shawnee to pull her short sword free and attack all in the same round. The assassin has no armor, but he does have a modest dexterity bonus that gives him an AC of 11. That means Shawnee only needs to roll a nine to hit her roll. An eight is not good enough. Her blade darts out, but the man, his face still hidden in the shadows, is too quick. Now it's his turn. As a fifth level thief, he gets the same plus two attack bonus as Shawnee. A 12 will hit her. His roll. A five. It seems that dodging her blow has cost him the chance to strike back effectively. Before we move on to round two, I need to decide how long it will take for help to arrive, because the sound of combat will certainly bring Catsbane, who is close by, and Bazu, who is a little farther away, running. I'll say Catsbane will arrive in two rounds. That's 12 seconds by the book, whereas Bazu will take twice as long to get there. It is round two. Initiative. The Assassin. A five. Shawnee. A two. The Assassin surges forward, trying to overpower Shawnee. A 19 is a hit. Ooh, four points of damage as he charges headlong into her. <laughs> Shawnee is almost knocked flat, but manages to backpedal with the impact and throw him off. She counters. An 18 will hit. Shawnee's blade, with its nick along the length from where it struck the stanchion in Goddard's bedchamber, slashes her assailant for four points of damage. <laughs> her opponent has just six hit points now and staggers, clutching his side. Now that they're both in the light, Shawnee can see his face. And what a face it is. The boy she had once known as Easley. The boy whose mother she had killed in retribution stands before her wearing a twisted grimace of hatred and misery. 
He is filthy. So filthy, in fact, that she had smelled him coming. She hadn't hurt him. Easley's hair is matted, and he's missing teeth. Life has not been kind to this boy since they last met, and it's clear he holds her to blame for all he has suffered. You! You took my mother away from me! He cries out wetly, breathing hard. Do you know what that feels like? A maniacal light flashes from his eyes. I'm gonna show you! I'm gonna cut out your black heart! He was unhinged, overcome with rage and loss and hate, and he didn't even seem to feel the wound she'd given him. Shanae had no time to reply because with those words, he launched another furious attack, swinging his knife wildly. It is round three. Catsbane will arrive in one more round, Bazu in three more. Initiative. Easily. Two. Shanae. Another two. Simultaneous combat. The two fighters slam together once again. I'll roll Shanae's attack first, but no matter what happens, Easily will get to strike back. Her roll. A 16. Ooh, a six on the damage die. She runs him through. <laughs> but even as the hilt of his sword slams against his solar plexus, Easley finds the strength, fueled only by the desire for revenge, to try and bring his dagger down on the hollow above her collarbone, right in the same place Shawnee put her knife when she killed his mother. The roll. A 19. Another three points. The tip of his blade is deflected by Tam's key, which has been shifted to the side in the struggle. Easley's dagger scrapes painfully, but not lethally, across her skin. In that same moment, the boy's breath hitches, his feet give out, and he slumps against her. Now the only thing holding him upright is Shawnee's blade. He manages one last curse before he dies, spraying her face with blood-flecked spittle as he forces out the last words he will ever speak. I hope you pay for what you've done. Combat is over. The sound of pounding footsteps preceded Catsbane, who burst into the room and looked about wildly, taking everything in. Shawnee's heart was hammering in her ears so hard she hadn't even heard him coming. Shawnee, are you all right? Who, by Vesseluna, is that Janelle's boy? Easley's corpse was on the ground, his dead eyes blankly staring at the wall. Bright ruby blood dripped from the tip of Shawnee's sword into a growing pool that spread out under the body. Shawnee merely nodded. Bazu was with them a few moments later. Sadaf's grace, and in the holy chapel, no less. Do you... do you know this man? Bazu could read something on both Shawnee's and Catsbane's faces, but he couldn't decipher it. I'll tell you on the way back. Shawnee's voice was devoid of all tone and feeling. Are you ready to go? I... have what I came for, yes, replied the cleric. And together, wordlessly, the three of them left the Church of the Sacred Flame and started back through the dark streets of Silmoral towards the Copper Dragon. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy the show and would like to help to support it, there are lots of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on social media. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Wielding Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show. This episode went a little bit longer than usual, so I'll skip reading a review this time around and move right along to thanking my great cast of voice actors. And this episode showcases the talent of a big cast. Six actors on this one. I think that must be a record for the show. 
There's the returning favorites of Kai Allen, Andrew Fling, and Kevin Berenger, who play Catsbane, Bazu, and Jace, respectively. John of the Dungeon Dads is back bringing Barrel Boy to life, as is Ben from Pink Fohawk, who plays Torum. Finally, returning to the show is Nico, the GM of the podcast A Fool's Quest. Nico plays Easley, the heartbroken and vengeful son of Janelle, and would-be assassin. Thanks very much to all these great talents. For listeners who would like to get in touch with me, I am at Manticore Tale on X or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hello, I'm Chris, and I love tabletop role-playing games. Even more than that, I love hearing about the characters in those games. In the TTRPG community, we're always playing characters or building them, so I decided to start a podcast about it. Professional Questers is a podcast all about players and their characters. Your host, that's me, interviews people in the TTRPG world about the folks they play and the games they love. We start off talking to the players, then follow it up by asking the characters themselves to tell their stories. So give it a listen and learn all about our beloved questers.